This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. It feels like something big is happening. The House recently deposed its speaker for the first time ever. Members of Congress face criminal indictments ranging from credit card fraud to acting as an unregistered foreign agent. That's spy to normal people. A former president faces multiple criminal and civil legal jeopardies. Members of Congress and the Supreme Court increasingly face threats. Things just feel a little unsteady, even dangerous. Has it ever been like this before, though? History might not repeat itself, but it certainly does rhyme, a quote attributed to Mark Twain. Uh, And here to discuss the historic parallels is Molly Reynolds, Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. Molly, welcome back to Political Theater. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back. The last time that you were on the on the podcast uh, in uh, back in 2021, uh, it was the early days of the Biden administration and a unified Congress. We were talking about uh, how unified governments are rare and fleeting, <laughs> uh, which is why you see uh, people who uh, are in the the majority party in in both houses and control the White House like to get a lot of stuff done as much as quick as they possibly can because they know the good times never last uh, for for them and that. Basically came true. Uh, the Republicans uh, were uh, won the majority back in the 2022 elections, uh, and the sort of the uh, what's the what would be a, a charitable term the the Michigas, uh, <laughs> uh, if you will, uh, happening in the House. There's just a lot uh, you know that we've seen and divided government. A lot of lots happened, but I I do want to talk to you though. Uh, we 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 can leave the the fallout from whatever happens on the floor uh, th- this week uh, to another podcast. But I what I think I'd love to talk to you about is it feels crazy. Has it always? been like this? Is this really unprecedented? Uh, I mean, obviously, we've never kicked a speaker out uh, before, but what are some of the other times in history where it has been relatively unstable, like this conditions we see in Congress? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. Um, and starting again, maybe just with the speaker race, you're absolutely right that, you know, when um, when the House uh, removed Kevin McCarthy, declared the chair vacant, um, that was the first time we had ever seen that um, motion successfully used in that way. Um, the um, other time in um, in American history when we saw a sort of an attempt um, to uh, to use the motion to vacate in the same way is actually back in um, 1910 um, when there was uh, it's the only other time that the House had voted on a resolution to declare um, the chair vacant um, that involved uh, Speaker um, Czar, as uh, he was sometimes called, Joe Cannon. Um, Uncle for Joe the, Cannon, for the, yeah, for the for more avuncular-minded among us, right? <laughs> yeah, and for whom the Cannon House office building um, is now um, is now named. And so, um, and so obviously that's more than a century ago. So in that sense, um, this particular, like the use of this particular tool in this way is not 
successfully was unprecedented, but we've seen it. We've seen it come up before. Um, and I think sort of thinking about that 1910 um, canon episode, which canon survived, um, unlike um, unlike us, uh, now former Speaker McCarthy, um, is illustrative because one of the things um, that was true about um, that uh, uh, that episode with Canon is that the sort of um, uh, insurgents against Canon had been planning uh, and like working to figure out how to depose him um, uh, for kind of a longer period of time. They had more kind of organizational strength than I think we've seen um, among the um, the rebels who um, who ousted. Um, uh, who ousted uh, McCarthy. Um, and it's, there's also sort of this question of like, what is motivating the current um, uh, rebellious faction in the House Republican conference? And how is that different than some of what we've seen before? Um, and they're, they're, they're not policy motivated or they're not sort of um, they don't share one set of policy motivations, which is at other times um, in divisions within a majority party uh, in the House. Often the divisions are over policy questions and the degree to which they there are procedural divisions, they sort of come downstream from those policy divisions. So here I'm thinking about sort of the period in the middle of the 20th century when there were emerging divisions within the Democratic caucus between the sort of um, remaining Southern Democrats and the uh, more racially progressive um, Democrats from outside the South. And there were, they had procedural divides, um, largely around sort of the power of the Rules Committee, the power of committee chairs. Um, but those um, were downstream from substantive divisions over um, bringing civil rights legislation to the floor. And what we have now is sort of these divisions within the House Republican conference that are less about a kind of unified policy agenda and divisions over that policy agenda and much more around sort of divisions of our tactics and kind of who is the truest conservative and just a desire to be for the um, for the the rebels, a desire to be seen as, you know, fighting as hard as they possibly can for um, for the true conservative principles and that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I've struck to by you know the back in you know the the aftermath of the 2022 election uh, when it became clear that the Republicans were going to get the majority but it was not going to be a very big majority the it, it was sort of the, the the there was this idea that this is the possibly the worst case scenario for somebody like Kevin McCarthy uh, because you know in when you're talking about like those times during you know sort of when Democrats almost had a lock on the House for years, you know, I'm thinking throughout the 1960s when when civil rights, you know, 50s and 60s when civil rights legislation was at the forefront and voting rights and so forth, that uh, they had so many seats <laughs> that they had a, a, sort of an error margin to work with, whereas McCarthy had five, uh, uh, you know, a, a margin of error of, of five. Um, and, you know, d just the fact that the such a small contingent of a caucus can be empowered when the margins are so close here that it it just seems like this he people knew that in in a sense he could be a marked man from the very beginning of the, of the speakership and we saw that play out yeah. in 15 rounds against him too you know <laughs> yeah and i think when we um when we think about the challenges that face um congressional leaders um, of both parties um, when they're in the majority in the contemporary era, 
One of those um, sets of challenges arises from this combination of narrow majorities and quite polarized parties. So um, obviously there are um, kind of structural differences between the Republicans and the Democrats that mean that managing these kinds of divisions in the Democratic caucus looks different than managing them within the Republican conference. But I think you know, if we look back to um, Pelosi's um, experience leading the House Democrats, particularly during sort of those first two years of the Biden administration, you know, under that in that elusive unified government that you were talking about before, um, she too was faced with this challenge of how to um, kind of build support for things within her own caucus. Um, and there were divisions within that caucus. Um, and working with Republicans on many things was not really on the table because of how polarized the parties are. Um, Obviously, the sort of bipartisan infrastructure law is an exception to that. The CHIPS Act was an exception to that. But on some of the other major Democratic priorities, um, we saw them resort to um, reconciliation, which allows them to do things on a party line basis, and then presented um, the Democrats with with this challenge of how do you how do you manage these divisions um, within your own party uh, and um, uh, in an era of small majorities and and polarized parties. And there's actually um, some of my political science colleagues, um, uh, James Curry and Francis Lee, have a really nice book where they look back over the past several decades and they find that when a majority party fails to enact its legislative agenda. Some of the time that is because um, they can't get supermajority support for it in the Senate. They can't overcome that filibuster hurdle. But at least as often, it is because of divisions within their own party. Um, And so I think we sometimes, because the most consequential difference in American politics is between the Democrats and the Republicans, that sometimes we can forget about the existence of differences within the party until it sort of comes and like slaps us in the face like it has been for the, <laughs> via the House Republican conference over the past several weeks um, in the kind of most elemental way in their um, their conflict over over choosing a speaker. And yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you mentioned that too, because the, I mean, I, I think about in the you know the last time that there was unified Republican control of the government, um, you know the the Republicans were were gearing up for a, re- a repeal uh, of the Affordable Care Act, uh, and uh, you know they they were they could have pushed that through via reconciliation and just gotten a majority, uh, but but a few you know like defectors if you will within within the Republican conference in the Senate, most notably John McCain, who had did this very emphatic thumbs down yeah. uh, on on the floor in, tw- in twenty seventeen. Uh, prevented that. Uh, and going back to the Affordable Care Act, uh, you know, passage itself went under unified Democratic control. Uh, it was the objections of of Democrats that prevented the public option of uh, public insurance option from from happening. And they had to the the the, the ambitions of the president and and Harry Reid and Nancy Pelosi needed to take a back seat just to get people like you know Joe Lieberman, Ben Nelson, and so forth uh, on board. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that um, I always like to remind people and all of those examples that you just um, sketched out um, uh, are good illustrations of this is that the rules aren't magic. They can't force agreement where agreement doesn't exist. And, you know, I think in some sense, that's what we're seeing with the House Republicans and their fight over choosing a speaker, that, you know, there was this rule that allowed them to force a vote to remove Kevin McCarthy. 
um, and they used it. And now there's no there's no sort of magic um, formula on the other side to resolve the underlying differences within um, within the conference. So you can sort of change the rules. You can use the rules in creative ways. Um, but at the end of the day, the question is, do you have support for uh, a piece of legislation, um, mm-hmm. a candidate for Speaker of the House, um, all of that? And I, I wonder, I mean, there has been talk and chatter of, of a bipartisan coalition coming together to elect a speaker who is not Jim Jordan, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, you know that, that something that would enjoy some Democrats uh, supporting a Republican nominee. And I, I find these, these sort of this kind of chatter um, hard to take seriously, you know, just because of where the parties are. But I, I, I'm wary of of just being like the cynical guy who's covered Congress for a couple of decades. I mean, how, what do you think when you hear the, the chatter about, you know, uh, so-and-so is reaching out to Hakeem Jeffries? I mean, we saw this last week when Mike Rogers, uh, Dem- uh, Republican from Alabama and the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, says he would reached out to Hakeem Jeffries and asked him what he wanted. And then lo and behold, a couple of days later, Rogers is like, We're gonna, I'm supporting Jim Jordan. <laughs> Yeah, so there's a couple of things I'd say. Um, one is that um, so in the cases in American politics where we have, and these are these largely come from state legislatures, where we have seen sort of um, a bipartisan speaker emerge, it has been as the result of cooperation between. Uh, the sort of most moderate members of the two parties. And fundamentally, um, what we've had, although um, maybe this is changing a little bit with the um, votes on on Jim Jordan, I don't know. But prior to now, the most vigorous opponents of Speaker McCarthy and then of um, uh, Scalise as his potential successor were from the right end of the conference. And they could not kind of make a credible claim to go to Democrats and sort of elect a speaker in that way. Um, and the more moderate members of the Republican conference, the ones from Biden districts, that sort of thing, um, did not seem particularly willing, as you were pointing out in the in the case of Mr. Rogers, to um, really uh, buck the kind of the the establishment um, wing of the party and and try to work with um, Democrats. I think more generally, though, it's important to remember that like the speakership, there's the vote to actually elect the speaker, but for a speaker to actually be able to work, he needs to have or she needs to have a workable, what we would call a procedural majority. So you have a majority, you have sort of a majority for any given piece of legislation. Maybe that's on a party line basis in the House. Maybe it's on a bipartisan basis. But you also need a majority that allows you to set the agenda on the House floor. And um, in on the House floor, that generally takes the form of getting the support of member of all the members of the majority party um, for what we call the special rule. So if you're setting the terms for debate, the important procedural vote before we actually get to the bill itself. And historically, um, we've had majorities where even if someone is ultimately going to vote against the underlying bill, they will often um, vote for the rule vote yes on this procedural vote to just be out of an, as an act of party loyalty and as sort of part of the implicit agreement between the leadership and its members that says, hey, you help us set the agenda on the floor, we'll give you the kinds of committee assignments you want, um, and we'll schedule the bills that you care about for, um, for consideration. 
we really over the past couple of months started to see that fall apart in the House. Um, And we saw a number of times Republicans um, bring down their own um, rules, um, special rule votes. And so for some, and I say all this because in a world where you manage to cobble together a bipartisan coalition to elect a speaker, um, that speaker maybe gets in the chair but does not necessarily have a sustainable procedural majority to govern week in and week out, does not necessarily have the votes um, that he can credibly expect for bringing bills to the floor. And the more times he or she has to go to Democrats to sustain the procedural majority, the more it alienates members of his own or her own party on the Republican side of the aisle. So it's just not a sustainable um, uh, trajectory. Right. Right. No, I, 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 you know, and we saw that like over and over again, it seemed like in the lead up to the debate on a continuing resolution on, on bills, you know, on, on spending bills in the house where the vote, the rules were going down, which is, you know, more rules went down, uh, in that the two weeks leading up to that than any I can remember in, in my, my memory of, of observing the place. I, I wonder like how, how volatile are things though right now? I mean, the, the, it you know we're we're sort of going bananas about it in Washington, right? I mean, like we we because this is our this is what we do, right? You know, like you're you're a scholar who studies the institution of Congress. I'm a journalist uh, who reports on the news coming out of Congress. Um, I mean, we know how abnormal this is. It's not clear that voters are cluing into this specific episode as a reason for for discontent. Certainly, polling shows that they have. Uh, very little patience for the political system. I, I, I was thinking about this Pew uh, survey from September that said four percent of the of those surveyed said that they thought the political system worked well. <laughs> um, you know, it was it was uh, you know not even it, it, getting close to the margin of error. <laughs> you know, if, uh, in 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 doubtabilities. And I, actually, I want to read that one of the things was notably Americans' unhappiness with politics comes at a time of historically high levels of voter turnout in national elections. The elections of 2018, 2020, and 2022, 2022 were three of the highest turnout U.S. elections of their respective types in decades. So on one hand, we have this disgust you know, with the, with the place, uh, with the American political system, and then we see record turnout too. So is this, is this a bad thing if people are paying attention so much that they're turning out? Or, or is, is this really just this anomaly, you think? So I think there are sort of two separate questions here. There's this question of sort of is discontent um, feeding higher levels of participation and might we think that more participation is a normative good in American politics? Um, uh, so that's sort of one question. But I think that for me, the bigger um, issue is what are the co- what is the consequences of this kind of current episode for the ability of the United States Congress to fulfill its basic governing responsibilities. Uh, we're recording this on uh, the 17th of October. Um, one month from now, on the 17th of November, uh, the measure funding the government on a temporary basis um, runs out, um, and we would be right back where we were at the end of September, facing down the prospect of a government shutdown. Just um, in time for the holidays. <laughs> uh, just in time for Thanksgiving. Um, you know, uh, um, and uh, so, and government shutdowns are, um, you know, costly in economic terms, in sort of efficiency terms. And also they have, you know, are 
um, have negative consequences for Americans who benefit from government services. So um, uh, that that cease to go out during um, during a shutdown. Um, and so I think that the fact that we uh, so again, if we sort of think back to where we were in September, um, this month was supposed to be the month that. House Republicans spent all this time working on their own versions of their spending bills, and maybe they passed them and maybe they didn't, but they were making progress towards um, some kind of consensus position that then they would negotiate with the Senate over, um, and that maybe eventually we would get to a deal that Joe Biden would sign. And instead, we've spent the past um, two weeks without a speaker. Um, We haven't even talked about sort of the one thing that is truly unprecedented in this um, in this episode is the circumstances under which Patrick McHenry became kind of the temporary speaker. Right. Um, he's the first person to have ascended to um, to that position under the terms of a House rule adopted um, in 2003. Um, so that is a that is a historic um, uh, a thing that has happened. So instead, we've sort of had two weeks with McHenry as the temporary speaker. Um, He's been interpreting the rules as saying that he can't bring legislation to the floor. So in that sense, the House has been in the stalemate, has not, as best I can tell, made any real progress on figuring out a negotiating position with the Senate on spending bills. Um, We've had all kinds of things start to happen around the world, most notably um, the war in Israel and Gaza that may require kind of congressional um, action to to provide security assistance, um, all kinds of things. And just the longer this particular form of dysfunction um, is at the center of what Congress is doing, um, that has huge negative consequences for governance, um, even, say, putting aside this question about whether people's frustration with the political system may or may not be mobilizing and, and drawing them to participate in politics more. I, I'd also note, too, that, I mean, as you noted, McHenry's ascension, um, you know, in a, in a plan drawn up by Kevin McCarthy. So McCarthy does get to continue to uh, influence the process through his pick uh, of, of McHenry. Uh, for for this position is that McHenry uh, as a sort of caretaker speaker is not uh, in the presidential line of succession. You know, the, spe- yep. the speaker is in the presidential line of succession after the vice president. Uh, and then after the speaker, it's the Senate president pro tem. So at a time when the, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be ghoulish here, but we have a, you know, an octogenarian president heading into a war zone on Wednesday uh, in his visit to Israel um, obviously, they're going to keep Kamala Harris, the vice president, uh, it, away from uh, you know like danger. I would I would guess, uh, but in you know in normal times, we would know like this is what would happen. You know, depending on what happens to all these folks, and now we don't. I mean, what will we do? We it goes right to Patty Murray, the Senate President Pro Tem, uh, the, the Democratic Senator from from Washington State. Uh, but this is starting to have real consequences, you know, along the lines of, you know, eventually, you know, when, you know, Tommy Tuberville, the senator from Alabama, started putting his hold on military nominations and promotions. It was like, oh, well, you know, let's let him like blow off some steam. And now it's over 300 and there's this backlog and it has real consequences when you're in a time of war. So those little, it feels like those, all these little things are starting to add up uh, in this time of instability. Yeah. And I just want to, um, uh, underline something you noted um, about McHenry and the presidential line of succession, um, that the rule that allowed uh, McHenry to ascend to the temporary speakership was itself a kind of continuity of government um, proposal reform that the House adopted um, after September 11th. So, and was designed um, uh, 
with a the potential of a mass incapacitating event in mind. The idea was that, you know, uh, we have something that like what nearly transpired on September 11th, where a large number of members of Congress, perhaps including the speaker, are dead or incapacitated, and we need some way to resume the functioning of the U.S. Congress. And so the... Um, we can have a whole other conversation on the ways in which um, kind of McHenry's, how McHenry has used the powers of um, the, as the acting speaker pro tem um, kind of raises its own concerns for what if we found ourselves in a real continuity crisis. But it, at the end of the day, it illustrates this um, dynamic that I think is important for the broader questions that we're talking about, which is that when the House makes choices about its rules or its um, procedures, it never quite knows what the circumstances under which those rules will become relevant are. Um, it can never see that far into the future. So, you know, in this case, we had this rule that was developed with the idea that um, we might need someone in a kind of true national crisis um, emergency Instead, we've used the rule for the first time uh, during an acute political crisis, but it's very different than what the, the drafters of the rule imagined. So when we have these questions about sort of what's unprecedented, what's not, it's really important to, I think, take a step back and say that even when we try to imagine what might be coming in the future, we can never foresee um, all of the circumstances under which um, a set of rules or procedures might ultimately be relevant. Wow. Yeah, it, it is. It, I, for some reason, I flashed to this idea that uh, I have, uh, you know, friends who have done, you know, kind of military style training as in, in sort of deployments to, to the Middle East and so forth and to Iraq. And, and one came back from this training session in, in Iraq uh, many years ago and said, you would be surprised at what a Corolla can do off road. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, 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 I granted that's a terrible metaphor, but it just made me think like you never know, as you said, you never know what the application of these rules is going to look like until you get into the situation you're in. Things could work well or they could not work well. Uh, it, it is true, you know, when when they came up with this rule, it was you know it was not designed for this. It was a continuity of of Congress in case of a mass casualty event, like you said, not uh, you know. Eight, eight Republicans who were angry at Kevin McCarthy and decided that they were going to bounce him that day. Uh, so uh, it, it's, it, I guess that's you know, gets at this idea that like we're, it does feel un, unsteady. Um, and and I, I don't like going back onto the like, oh, but you know, people say like, well, during the Civil War, things were, you know, like uh, unsteady too. I'm like, Yes, they were. And the country almost didn't make it. I, I prefer I like our time frame of keeping this sort of in contemporary times the last hundred years or so, because at a certain point, you know, when you have literally people who identify, quote unquote, as know nothings in Congress, the, some of the parallels break down <laughs> a little bit. So keeping it in this modern contemporary time frame is is is, I think, a, a, a good Good decision on our part. Yeah, us, you know, <laughs> um, to, to start and start to wrap things up a little bit. I mean, in. In in situations like this, where we have seen you know just uh, sort of mass discontent, you know, the, of the public with Congress or problems within Congress, you know, like just getting its basic functions done, what are some of the things that you look for as as the the out? Because they don't just like good times never last, bad times never seem to last either. It, it seems like we're on quite a streak <laughs> uh, in, in terms of of some of the bad things that are happening, you know, pandemics and so forth. 
But what what are some of the things as a scholar that you look for to say like ah this could be this could be the thing that that begins to turn turn things this is the fulcrum or the the inflection point where we might get into a new era that isn't defined by such bad blood and polarization. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and this moment, I think, can be kind of particularly hard to um, see ourselves and see our way out of. Um, but I think generally, when we think about kind of what changes could we make to how the House and the Senate work to try and um, make them more functional, it's just very important to sort of meet members where they are. And I say that by uh, to mean that to take seriously the incentives that they face on a daily basis um, and to build reforms um, and build changes that um, kind of allow for uh, more collaborative and bipartisan outcomes, but again, begin from this acknowledgement of the realities of the political moment. And so um, I will say as sort of one example, and this is um, not something huge, but um, I, when we look at, so over the past, say, decade or so, the um, the year in which uh, Congress had the most success in getting any of its appropriations work, so any of its spending bills done before the start of the new fiscal year on October first, um, was in the fall of um, twenty eight. <coughs> excuse me, the fall of twenty eighteen, um, when I believe they managed to get five of the thirteen bills done before October first, and that included the defense bill and the bill funding um, the Departments of Labor, Health and Human Services and Education, which are the two biggest bills by sort of dollar amount. So the um, the um, the largest shares of the discretionary budget. And the way that they did that was by sort of like acknowledging we are not going to get all of these bills done on the floor one at a time. The realities of the filibuster in the Senate, both the sort of time hurdles that uh, uh invoking cloture on individual bills require, and just the politics of getting to 60 votes. It is in our interest to package these bills together um, in smaller packages um, uh, to and have to build this, particularly in the Senate, this 60-vote coalition um, fewer times. And so there are people who hate this, who don't like minibuses, who think it's really normatively important. That's what we call these like little packages oh, of I spending bills. I know people who hate even the term minibus. <laughs> You know who you're, you are um, out there. <laughs> I um, I like any um, opportunity that I have to like use pictures on the internet. So I am happy for them. I'm happy for little, all of my chances. short buses. <laughs> exactly. Well, my 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 chances to um to just to display what I'm talking about with pictures of of, of little um, little uh, actual uh, buses. But anyway, um, but I like what I like about that idea is that it says okay. In an ideal world that we don't live in, we could consider each of these bills individually and build the coalition to get them over the finish line before the fiscal year starts. But we don't live in that world. Uh, at least we don't live in that world right now. So how do we sort of take the best parts of the process, the parts that are still functioning um, uh, reasonably well, like the, the process of developing the bills in committee, and figure out a way to sort of go around the biggest pain point, getting them through the floor, um, how do we do that procedurally? And so, um, again, there are people who don't like this, there are people who don't like the term, um, but I like the the notion of trying to 
be clear about what we're optimizing for, which for me is like the deliberative construction of the bill, and then accepting that in the current political circumstances, we're not going to uh, be able to process them in, in the way that you know folks would prefer in some kind of platonic ideal of the appropriations process. And there are lots of other places um, where you um, where you can see this. And um, I spent a lot of the last um, several years um, in conversation with the folks on the um, House Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress. Um, and this was one of the things I really appreciated about folks like um, Derek Kilmer, who's the um, committee's chair, um, uh, William Timmons, who was its second um, vice chair, and um, Tom Graves, who was its first vice chair. Um, they, were, they, they took this idea seriously, this notion that, you know, we could try to make this place work better without sort of pretending that the politics don't exist. Right. No, it is. Yeah, it, I I enjoyed working with them too. We had a a, very, a nice webinar and podcast uh, with, with the two of them. I I, I wish the, the committee would come back. I think there's a demand for it, as we can see. Yeah, you know. and I I will say I also I, they there is now a um a subcommittee of the committee on house administration that um is charged with kind of furthering the work of um, the select committee kind of implement uh, following up on implementation of its recommendations. And there, um, Mr. Kilmer and um, Stephanie Bice of Oklahoma are leading that. Um, and I've been um, I've been excited to see what they've been up to so far. But I think, again, and I, you can sort of see opportunities for this in the Senate, too, but just trying to say, these are the political realities that we live in. We can't sort of take the politics out of Congress. Right. Um, but how do we um, how do we start from the incentives that members face and try to build procedures and systems that within those incentives drive us to better outcomes? Well, Molly Reynolds, thank you very much, you know, for for walking us through kind of history and also where we're at right now. I know we went through a lot. <laughs> we covered a lot for everything from Uncle Joe Cannon uh, to the Modernization Committee that uh, that, that we we both uh, have uh, sort of had our our time covering and and. I, I think that we will have more to talk about as we see the next few weeks play out, but I really liked just sort of taking stock of where we're at, where we've been with you today. So thank you very much for coming on. Well, this is my favorite kind of conversation that covers everything from uh, the revolt against Joe Cannon to uh, to what's happening literally hours ago. So thanks for having me. And thank you out there uh, listening here on uh, Political Theater. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to us in all of our forms, whether it's on iTunes or on YouTube or things like that. Uh, follow Molly. Molly, uh, wh where should uh, our, our uh, listeners follow you on social media? What's the best one? Uh, they can find me on uh, the platform formerly known as Twitter um, at uh, Molly E. Reynolds. Um, and I am also on uh, Blue Sky um, at basically at Molly E. Reynolds as well. So you can follow me both those places. Excellent. Uh, thanks again for listening. And we will see you next time on Political Theater. <laughs> <laughs>